0: Uh, Now, I think that the right question to ask before we start uh, is, you know, we know Rashi died in the year 1105. Uh, From my calculation, that's uh, 911 years ago. It's a long time ago. Uh, And the question that we should ask, and maybe that should be kind of in the, beneath the surface of our discussion today, is why would someone who died so long ago yet be so relevant or, uh, today? You know, why, why, are we, why are we having this discussion of a biographical sketch of trying to uh, discuss and analyze and probe the legacy of a great scholar that lived so, almost a 1,000 years ago. Born, he was born in 1040. You know, that's in, in, in 15 years. In 20, whatever, yeah, I guess in, in um, 25 years, 24 years, we're, we're going to reach the 1,000-year mark of his birth. And this is a long time ago. And the question I think we should be asking is, how is it possible for someone to be so relevant so many years, or or more specifically, what about his contribution to Jewish life and to the world in general makes his name uh, uh, still reverberate uh, today? Um, Why does it matter? I think the, the, the way to approach that is to kind of look back at discussion we had about the Rambam, if you guys remember about a year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever it was we had a discussion um, about Maimonides and I know we've, I've played this game before with students in yeshiva you know, who was the most impactful person of the last thousand years, I guess in, in the Jewish world uh, and invariably the two answers are either Rashi or Maimonides and I haven't heard a different answer um,
1: is it specifically limited to um, uh, s- scriptural, or could it be a, 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 a contemporary Jew?
0: Well, it could be anyone. I know in the last thousand years, the answer is always either Rashi or Maimonides. And uh, and I, I think the way to kind of encapsulate it before we go into the details is that when we just study when we studied the realm, when we talked about Ma- Maimonides, what we learned was that he took something that was very hard, was impossible for us to grasp, and he made it accessible. And he took what's, what I call halacha, or Jewish living, which was out there, it was in the Talmud. If you read all of the Talmud, and you were a tremendous scholar, and you knew how to compare and contrast all the different parts of the Talmud uh, against each other, and you understood all the nuances, and you were a tremendous scholar, you would know halacha. You would know how to live as a Jew. But what about the rest of us? You know, what about the people that aren't the scholars? What about the people that remember at, at that time? You know, we're, we're deep into the uh, the Crusades Very already.
1: Impactful because of the influence that they got. Even those non-scholars are still influenced by. That's right. And, and, and
0: to live as a Jew, right. Jewish living is not possible today. I mean, if, if we remove the Roman from the equation, we wouldn't be able to live today as Jews because we would have no idea where to start. Because the Ramam set into motion an entire realm of study, which, or, or of scholarship, which kind of collected and distilled and synthesized all of Jewish learning, of Jewish halacha, from the Talmud and from all the associated books, and wrote down in an organized fashion. And in his introduction to his magnum opus to the Mishnah Torah, he writes, he says, All you need to know how to live as a Jew is the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Chumash, the Torah, the written Torah, simple, and this book. That's it. I'll take all of Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Sefra, Sefri, Mechel, the Torah's Kohanim, all the associated medrishes, all the things that are unwritten, and I'll write them all down and organize them by topic. Laws of Torah study, uh, laws of behavior, laws of Shemitah, laws of Passover, laws of, 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 of Alulav, laws of Mezuzah, laws of Laws of, laws of charity, like we discussed when we talked about the laws of charity. Any topic of Jewish life, including, by the way, the ritualistic um, and uh, sacrificial laws, which weren't in application, he organized them law by law, subject by subject, one after another. Indeed, it's very fair to say that the Rambam made it possible for us to live as Jews, to behave as Jews to know what to do as a Jew. And indeed, of course, he spawned a lot of, a lot of competition or a lot of imitators, and as all the great ones do. And then we find that after the Rambam, we, we meet other, other commentators that do the same thing. And then we meet someone like the Shulchan Aruch, like Rabbi Joseph Cairo, who wrote the, what's called the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, which is like a compendium of, or, or a synthesis of all the preceding commentaries which are all predicated, all based upon the Rambam's model. Indeed, I think it's a very fair argument to say that organizing Jewish law in a way that makes it accessible was, was kicked off by the Rambam. Now, where does Rashi fit into this? I would say, if I had to say, I would say like as follows. I would say, if the Rambam made Jewish living possible, Rashi made Jewish learning possible, Jewish study possible. Indeed, we find that his uh, contemporaries write about him which is always interesting where to kind of look at how someone's legacy gets shaped over time. Uh, sometimes it takes a while for people, for greatness to be appreciated. Right? The Ramam himself, as a good example, had a lot of detractors in his time. You know, The Ramam is the one who starts writing the, uh, uh, the principles of faith, which was tremendously controversial. You know, who, who is this young man to tell us what our principles? Remember, the Ramam is a 24-year-old who's writing this. And I'll, I'll tell you the 30 principles of faith. These are principles, and everything else is not principles. What do you mean? All of Torah's principles. You know, and he had a lot of distractors about that. But, uh, you know, he, he was someone that over time, the Jewish people in their totality uh, uh, had accepted him as the last word in Jewish philosophy.
1: Was he considered a wonder
0: when he was Who? studying Russian? Oh, All of them were. I'm saying you, you look at the... Uh, the literary accomplishments of the Rambam and of Rashi as well, and it's, it's impossible to imagine for us someone to do so much, so well uh, in such a short amount of time. But
1: was he recognized as he, when he
0: was studying? And, yeah. Well, oh, so we'll talk about his childhood, we'll talk a little bit about, about his childhood and, and we'll see. most <laughs> <laughs> mo- most Most certainly. Oh, it's, it is interesting. You know, you look at, at um, we know that the Rambam was a very busy, uh, you know, he, he was a very, very busy physician, yet he wrote, um, you know, several books that are unmatched in their scope and their scholarship and their depth uh, in any domain. And
1: didn't he do a bunch of them when he was just
0: like a teenager? Yeah, well, like when he's a teenager hiding in caves from, from radical Muslims, the Almohads, he's hiding in caves in, 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 in northern Morocco. In the Atlas Mountains.
1: But he also only slept a couple hours. In, I mean, it was like that, seriously. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's it's it's, it's otherworldly for well, us.
1: He, he was also getting some sort of I don't know what it was like in, involved at the time, but he got a medical degree somehow. Well, and he
0: this, he uh, he was the court physician. Yeah, He was the court yeah. physician yeah. in Cairo
1: time. Yeah. All so physicians were self-taught. You, you trained with a different physician and you proved okay, yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. That, there were credentials of some sort. No. I assume. No. I was just so so perspective. So. Really? What is the he time died, you give uh, between Rambam yeah. and Rambam Okay, so Rashi was
0: born in the year 1040 and he died in the year 1105. There is this legend that Rashi met the Rambam, which is obviously not possible because the Rambam was only born 30 years after Rashi died. Yeah.
1: Can on
0: the names? Rambam? Rambam
1: yes. Rambam. Rambam, the same. same person, that's right.
0: Rashi is just Rashi. Just uh, that, Rashi. That's it. His name was Rabbi Shlomo. And then the, the Rashi is an acronym. It's interesting because you look at uh, the scholars of the time, they were all called by their acronym. Rabbi X, uh, the son of X. So Rambam is Rabbi Moshe ben, which means the son, of Maimon. His father's name was Maimon, so he's called Maimonides. If you hear the term Nachmanides, that's, guy. that's Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. So his father was Nachman, so called Na- Nachmanides. Um, Rashi is Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak. His father's name was Yitzchak, uh, and the reason why he's not called Rashbi, which is what all of his contemporaries are—Rabbi Shimon ben Yitzchak—is because there already was a Rashbi. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai was one of the uh, most uh, frequently uh, named uh, members of the Mishnah, authors of the Mishnah, uh, of course. Uh, very famously, uh, according to Jewish tradition, is the author of the Zohar, but he's the one who also escaped from the Romans and was hiding in a cave for 12 years, ended up being 13 years. Uh, one of the great uh, great uh, heroes in Jewish history, he was very called Rashbi. So I think that, that's the reason why they call him just Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, which means the son of Yitzchak. Um, now his name also has, his acronym also has other connotations, uh, uh, a Reish yud could also be spelled as, or could also be elaborated as rabban Shel Yisrael, the teacher of Israel, uh, because indeed that was the function that he played. Uh, indeed, today it becomes it's, it's, it's perplexing to us how Jewish study was even possible before Rashi. Uh, he became so indispensable to Jewish learning that to us, like if we would remove Rashi from the equation, the Talmud would be a seal book. And like we said, uh, it, sometimes it takes many generations or many years of reflection to appreciate the greatness of someone's contribution. Uh, but his contemporaries already write that Rashi made the Talmud, and of course, which you know, he commentary in all of Talmud, which is, you know, the study of Talmud, is a great feat if someone's able to do that. Certainly to write a commentary to all Talmud uh, would be astounding. Uh, To write a commentary that became so indispensable that the books of the Talmud that don't have his commentary, the few books that don't have his commentary, and I I studied some of them. It's so much harder to study Talmud without Rashi. Yes, he has his imitators. There are those that say, okay, Rashi didn't write for whatever reason on this particular book. I'm going to do his... I'm you know I'm gonna, I'm going to fill his shoes, but his shoes aren't filled. You feel it, and I I I know for myself. There's there's the, the book of Nazir doesn't have Rashi, doesn't have a, a later edition of Rashi. We'll see Rashi edited his work several times. Uh, the book of Nadarim doesn't have Rashi, or or has a primitive version Why of did Rashi. He
1: not write on. Did he die before well, he could? Or? Well,
0: he only lived to sixty five. Right. Uh, and he wrote a commentary on all of Tanakh, all of the Jewish Bible, uh, what's known as the Old Testament. Um, in modern lexicon, uh, he wrote in all of Talmud. Now, um, we know that even, and we know that he wrote it several times. So there are certain books of the Talmud that we only have, let's say, the first edition, but not the revised and edited and, uh, and, and perfected second and third edition. And there's translation oh,
1: pre- issues too, right, in, in between? I
0: mean, well, there's translation issues with all, of word, all the words. All, you know, you, you read the, the Talmud is written in Aramaic, right. the Torah is written in Hebrew. Most of, the, most, of the, most of the Tanakh is written in Hebrew. Some parts of the Tanakh are written in Aramaic. Yep. Uh, and you have an obscure word that there's no corollary. And by the way, Rashi will tell you if there's no corollary. It's, it's in a, you read Rashi's and you're like, and you have to remember, like, this is with all without computers, right? He'll tell you every place that that word is written. If there's an obscure word, he'll say, this word means X, he'll translate it, and very frequently he'll give you the French translation for it as well because he, was, he lived in France. And he'll tell you, there are four other places in all of Jewish writings where this word appears, and he'll he'll he'll, he'll enumerate them one after another, and I'll say okay, this and this is what the, what it means in all the in all different places, and then sometimes he'll say there's no other corollary for this in, in all of in all of, in all of Jewish writing. This is the only time that this word appears, and that happens frequently, and I'll tell you what that word means. But can you imagine like how you have to know all of Tanakh by heart? Just the enormous amount of volume that you have to know by heart to just even consider writing such a commentary?
1: Problem right? What is that? Perfect recall.
0: Perfect what? Perfect recall. Yeah. Well, yeah. it must have had a tremendous, like we said, so it was was a wonder kitten who knows, but he was certainly gifted certain. and talented. For certain. Uh, so, I, you know, I, it's funny because it, it, this it feels like a deeply personal discussion for me because in a yeshiva environment, Like, everything is inexorably tied to Rashi. You don't learn the text of the Talmud without consulting Rashi. Like, that's, like, it's not like it's a commentary. There's there's thousands upon thousands and thousands of commentaries on, 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 on on the Talmud. Thousands, literally thousands, and probably tens of thousands of commentaries. The one commentary that's indispensable, that you cannot skip, that no one skips, is Rashi. Everything else, say, well, I do this, I don't do that, I'm looking at this, I'm you know, studying that, there's an interesting commentary here, an interesting there. Rashi, no one steps because you can't study Talmud without it. You don't understand what, you know, remember, the Talmud is not written with punctuations. And the Talmud, by its nature, is, trying, is written very briefly. It, 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 it's trying to, you know, say with as minimal words as possible, convey its ideas. Uh, no punctuation. You don't know, if it, is this a statement or is this a question? Or is this, uh, is this puzzlement? It's a seed. Right? He, he gives you all that, you know, in, in, in his commentary. Like, translation of words. Explanation of, of kind of between the lines. If you read Talmud, uh, there are so many things that are being implied. That's why it's so hard. Like, it takes... It take you a, a day to study one page, or even a month to study one. How, how, how does it take you a day to study one page? I can read a page of anything. You know, in in, in maybe ten minutes, twenty minutes, you read a page of Talmud. You're like, every line is a discussion, but it's it's written in four words, because there's everything between the words that it's not being written, and you have to unpack that all with Rashi. Read between the lines, but yeah, but it's but it's more, it, you know, it's it's all there, it's all hidden, and Rashi kind of unlocks the Talmud for us to try to study the Talmud. That Rashi is is, is it's it's maddening. What's going on over here? Like, orient me. I'm I'm lost. So,
1: does Rashi ever write about contemporary things? And-
0: yes. What's interesting is that Rashi was a tremendous scholar of uh, so all these different of, domains.
1: Um, homosexuality. Did he talk? Writings,
0: things that would have been a part of the society. That so that's, that, that's interesting. Rashi um, submits himself to the text. Uh, Rashi doesn't go off on tangents. One of, one of the reasons why Rashi is so beloved is because he sticks to the page. You look at other commentaries uh, uh, on, on the Torah, on Talmud, what was that? Rashi is the only one that did a commentary, a comprehensive commentary on both. Rashi is the first commentary of his kind on of the Talmud, uh, and not quite replicated. When you say it uh, but, sticks to the so page, said, do you
1: mean literal the literal word, or I'm trying? I'm
0: curious. Yeah, I'll explain what I mean. So, so the the the, the uh, uh, there's a verse in in the Torah, right? The verse is talking about whatever it's talking about. Rashi will keep you in the page. He won't bring you elsewhere. He won't say, well, in four other places. Unless he's trying to translate a word, of course. But uh, uh, this theme is found here and it's found there. He is explaining to you what you're reading. You want to read the text of the Torah? You want to know what it means? You look at Rashi. He's not going to take you on these elaborate journeys uh, throughout the worlds of scholarship. Uh, You study Talmud. Now, very frequently, there's a a theme in a Talmud that is repeated elsewhere. Uh, There may be three or four or five or ten different places where this item is discussed. And then you'll have the great commentators and the great uh, um, scholars that will take all those ten sources and organize them and say, are they disagreeing or not? Well, they appear to be disagreeing, but are they really? But what's the context of that? What's the context of here? Let's let's contrast them. Well, maybe there's a question. Wait a minute. Here it says this, and you look at the other end of the Talmud, it says that. What's going on? Is there a disagreement? Like, Rashi never does that. Rashi will keep you reading the Talmud, This is what it means. So he doesn't go on any elaborate discussions, and that's why one of the interesting pursuits of of, certainly in the Talmud is to try to glean from Rashi that that he doesn't say. For example, you have a a, a particularly naughty portion of Talmud, which is almost any portion of Talmud because that's the way it's written, Uh, and. It's, you know, it's very dense. It's very delicate, uh, where kind of everything is kind of hinging on these hairs, right? That's what the Talmud itself is described. So you have, imagine you have a mountain that's, that's balancing on a hair. You know, that's how volatile it is. Uh, such big discussions and, and, and kind of with every hesitation of, of the text of the Talmud, you're not sure which way it's going. And you finish it, and you want to kind of organize it and try to extract some sort of conclusion.
1: Like the last two parsons,
0: right? Well, is that another example of something that, that, that yeah, but imagine trying to look at the Talmudic text of that. Yeah. Uh, so you want to pull conclusions. Rashi doesn't give you conclusions. Remember, Rashi is taking your hand and walking with you step by step through the <coughs> text that you're studying. Be it the Torah, be it the buts of the Prophets, be it the buts of the right, Ra- whatever it is, and certainly be it the Talmud. He's taking your hand. What does this mean? What does that mean? Where are we holding? What is the question? Let's let, let's understand the question. Let's elaborate it. Go ahead.
1: Well, Rabbi, I'm fascinated by this because how do you say he doesn't really form conclusions if well, he tells you what every specific thing means and doesn't go off on these tangents? Yeah, so,
0: so, okay, because he's, like I said, he's working with you through the process.
1: But isn't he... Ba- so, in other words, by telling you what each... Uh, 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 verse means, for lack of a better word. He's not concluding anything. He's just telling you what it means. Well,
0: well, what happens is is that, okay, you finish, you finish the section of the Talmud, and then you open up the commentators and you see there's this wild disagreement about a certain nuance that's being discussed. Uh, and you'll, you'll have five opinions on one side, five on the other side. Just tremendous debate and scholarship. So and the question you would have is, himself. okay, what can we prove from the text of Rashi what his position would be on this mm-hmm. issue. Because remember, Rashi will not tell you his conclusion.
1: Okay, that's Because he
0: is working with you along the process. And, and to even get through the process is impossible without him. You can't do it.
1: He wants to help you form your own conclusions, I guess. No. By he,
0: and, 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 and and the great, you And know, the great scholars will spend a lot of time trying to extract from Rashi's treatment of the process what his conclusions were. You know, he'll say one word. I, I can think of so many examples. I, I, I it's funny because I was trying to. It's very hard to illustrate if you haven't actually done. I was thinking about bringing in some, some, some examples, and say, okay, what's he saying or what's he not saying? Well, I we have a few examples that I, that I did select. I um, will give you an example which popped into my head. Right. So we spoke about this uh, a few times. We know that in Jewish law. Uh, almost anything that, any Jewish law that stands in the way of me living and me continually living, we do away with, right? So if there's, for whatever reason, someone's diabetic and they need to eat food now and there's no kosher restaurants around, they would be allowed to, in fact, even encouraged to, uh, to, to eat non-kosher to stay alive. Uh, you know, you, you're having a heart attack, it's Shabbos. Do right? you drive to the hospital, or do you light a candle if you need to, etc.? All those things we know we do away with all the laws um, in order to preserve a life. Now, why?
1: Because doesn't the Torah say you live by the commandments, not die by them?
0: Okay, so that's the verse in the Torah. Uh, that the, These are the commandments, that a person does it, and he lives with them. You live with them, you don't die with them. Okay, now l- listen to the disagreement between the commentaries. One opinion says like this. Indeed. What, let's say we didn't have that verse. Let's say if we remove the verse of you should live by them and not die by them. Let's say you remove that verse and not exist. What would happen then? You you'd have to, That's what you would imagine, right? I
1: guess. Or no, you go, go to the next level. You disagree? I disagree because when it comes to preserving life, the average person is going to do whatever it takes.
0: Okay, but, but uh, we're not talking about the average person. We talk about Russia, not
1: about this passage, right? That's not this good. Well, it's connected, though. It's connected.
0: No, well, I'm saying, but if you. The but, human but, nature but, is to, okay, to preserve Okay, Okay, but, 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 but let's work with this systematically. We have a verse, like, Stephen, like, you know, like Steve said, we have a verse that tells us that the verses are meant for us to live and not to die. And thus we know that if the verse is telling me to die, why don't listen to the verse? The verse is only telling me to live. But let's imagine the verse, that verse was, wasn't written. You could make the argument... The of, argument you would say you could is that, make okay. the
1: argument, I mean, what, what is martyrdom? I mean, some people will, uh, not in the Islamic radical sense, but, I mean, just in general, some people do die for causes. And you could maybe make the argument that's God's will uh, if a diabetic can't get kosher food. I'm not saying I agree with... That's what you would make the argument, correct? saying, and that might be totally consistent with what God's will
0: is. And I agree with you. However, however, we, we find an opinion that says like this. Listen to this. Or, and like we said, like, the verse does say something. Obviously we need the verse for something. Because otherwise we wouldn't have the verse. So simply we would say that the verse is telling us that that we wouldn't know otherwise. Mm-hmm. I.e., that if we didn't have the verse, we would indeed have to give up our lives for any infraction. That's what you would think comes along the verse and says no the verse the the the, the Torah the mitzvahs are given us for us to live and not to die and therefore we don't give up our lives uh, for for minor infractions you know uh, with the exception of the three cardinal sins. And if you
1: save one life, you save all humanity.
0: True. Uh, says the commentary called the Tosafos. Tosafos actually uh, is a compendium of different commentaries that are, uh, was uh, part of the legacy of Rashi because he established a school uh, in France. Uh, we know that we'll talk about his life story in, in a little bit. He established a school and his descendants, his sons-in-law, he didn't have any, any sons. Uh, his daughters, of course, are very famous. Uh, he didn't have any sons. So his sons-in-law and his grandchildren, they headed a magnificent institution, and that ultimately uh, they, they wrote a uh, 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 commentary on the Talmud called the Tosafos. And they say as follows, Tosafos, which means the additions. And it's like an addition to Rashi. And you'll see in every, every page of the Talmud, you have the t- text of the Talmud in the middle. And then in the inner margin, you'll have the text of Rashi. In the outer margin, you have the text of Tosafos. There's a Tosafos like this. We know that the Torah says that there's three mitzvahs that you are not allowed to transgress to save your life. Adultery, murder, and idolatry. And these are each learned with separate verses, or separate sources, not quite verses. Some of them are verses, some of them are sources. The sources say that you have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, even if it means giving up your life, i.e., you cannot do idolatry to save your life. It says Tosfos. Indeed, if we didn't have the verse of you should live by them, and not die by them, you would still know that you're allowed to transgress sin sin to save your life, like Janet said. However, now that we have the three cardinal sins that we're told specifically that you have to give up your life and not transgress, we would have compared those sins to other sins, and thus we would have extended those Oh uh, that requirement to give up your life in martyrdom to other mitzvahs. and in order to say not to think like that, we were told you should live by them and not die by them I know it 's a little complex, right That's but good. it's good, okay, go we 're good yeah so this is obviously this is way off the page, like this is not on the page at all like this you can see how this kind of goes this is like a discussion a conclusion of. You know the Tesla Talmud talks about well every mitzvah every mitzvah that you know that, that you tell that you're told either do you either do do the mitzvah and you die or you transgress the mitzvah and you live you uh, transgress the mitzvah and you live. Besides for God. three. Besides for three. And then off this page, we have this, 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 this very kind of delicate discussion as to what is the exact mechanism of the, what, what role does the verse play? Does the verse actually tell you that you're allowed to give up your life, that you're allowed to transgress to save your life? Or does it only tell you that we don't extend, that we don't extend the requirement to give up your life to other mitzvahs? And I remember when we were discussing, when we were learning this, 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 uh, this uh, session in Talmud, The question that was asked was, what does Rashi say? And by the way, the question was also asked, what does does the Ramam say? Got to look and touch the Ramam, because he doesn't discuss it outright. So what what can we deduce from what he says and what he does not say, and what he says and where he says what he says, which is also interesting. Because the way the Ramam organized it is all by design. So that's the placement of a certain law would also tell you about what he thinks about the law, which is, you know, incredible, like... His order, just how he organizes this thing is so precise that the fact that he placed it here and not there will tell you a lot about what he thinks about that. But what does Rashi say? So we were able to prove from what Rashi said, what Rashi Rashi didn't say, that Rashi indeed disagreed with Tosavot and he believed that, uh, that indeed without this verse you would have to give up your life. As an example. You can see why I maybe didn't want to do this. Because it's like, whoa, you know, we're going way off off our page, so to speak. Uh, But this is very interesting. Like, you know, the the scholarship of Rashi, it's it's one of the themes that we'll see again and again, is that Rashi is what you study the first time you learn Chumash. And Rashi is what you study when you're already an advanced scholar. And you study Chumash ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times even. And Rashi kind of scales up with you. Like, you cannot read the verse without Rashi. Okay, so you. So just to have a rudimentary understanding of what's going on here, you read Rashi. You're an advanced scholar, and you're trying to understand the depths. You also look at Rashi, because Rashi kind of is able to fill any, wherever you are in your scholarship, Rashi's there with you. Simplistically, just to understand what's going on, just orient me. Very advanced, trying to understand and, and trying to uh, 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 glean and extract from the nuances of what Rashi says and what Rashi does and how he says it. And couldn't he have said this? Question that, like we asked a lot in, in Talmud. Like, question you don't, you don't hear other people say. Let's examine a text. Wouldn't it have been better if he said it this way? Which is a bizarre question. No, this is the way he said it, right? Well, why are you trying to improve Rashi? The answer is because I cannot possibly improve Rashi. If Rashi didn't say the way I think perhaps is a better way to say it, indeed it's not a better way to say it, and the question is why. Why can't I improve the text of Rashi because he's better than me? By orders of magnitude. So from the fact that he didn't say it in this way that I think would be better...
1: It's, it's, it's just that it's the way it is.
0: Well, but it's the way it is for a reason.
1: Exactly. But, but so it's, it's there. You couldn't improve on it. If you were there and you were good, you might do that same capability you can just grow on it it's great if uh, you know he's a a human being he was a human. yes okay so he was you know we were all imperfect so what says that everything that Rashi said is perfect and everybody who disagrees with him is imperfect or wrong well that's the
0: thing because he, Rashi will always have people that disagree with in fact his grandchildren who are the primary architects of the Tosavos they disagree with him all the time so the point is not that he's infallible but the point is, is that even when they disagree with him, there's a difference between a disagreement based upon a legitimate argument on either side and a disagreement based upon a mistake Rashi's not going to make any gross mistakes clearly, no one ever says that what they'll say is, I know what you're saying, it makes sense what you're saying, however, I say something else, and what I'm saying makes more sense, or I, saying, I have evidence that I'm right. But no one's ever going to say that Rashi made a mistake in, in calculation or in, in organizing of his, uh, 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 of his thoughts. Thus, if his thoughts are what you would think are maybe not optimally organized, then that tells you something about what Rashi is thinking. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not claiming this. Uh, I mean, you're,
1: making, you know, you're making him into a god. No, I'm thing. not.
0: I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm just saying. There's no, I'm not is saying you that he's infallible. The mm. you know, the pope's there's no papal in, in fa- infallibility well, here. I mean. yeah. but, the, but the point is, is that <laughs> he's well thought out. Yeah. <laughs> Thus, and, and that's the way he's all has has always been said. By the way, his temperance also. Well, you, could. of course. Yes, of right?
1: course, I of right? course get
0: to some spiritual level I guess, right? Yeah, not, not, no one's saying that he's perfect and never sinned. There's no one who doesn't sin. Um, that's well, right. Know, we know that.
1: I was in a Torah class many years ago and, and the guy that led the Torah class there were many times that he thought Rossi was just a little nutso. <laughs> you know, he had other sources for whatever it was. We
0: were I want to tell you what happened once here. Uh, it happened in a class in, uh, I got the second, Stephen I guess you wanted to contribute. Uh, we, had a, we had a class, my brother was given a class on Shabbos in one of the synagogues in our neighborhood. And there was this argument that started to develop about what something meant. So I said to him, well, let, so there was some guy there, very, very passionate and uh, assured of himself individual, was saying, No, this is what it means. I said, well, let's look at Rashi. You know, Rashi seems to disagree with you. Uh, so he said, uh, listen, Rashi is a human being. I'm a human being. Rashi says something, and this is what I'm saying. I said to him, "Sir, excuse me, right? Like, but you're not worth the dust on the Rashi's feet." So I told him. He's like, "What?" <laughs> and it's funny because I said that I was, I because I was like, he, he was treating Rashi as you know, kind of. Flake. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was mistreating Rashi. Like he said, like Rashi's a human being. I'm a human being, and. I said to him, sir, you're not worth the dust on the Rashi's feet. And then I was thinking about it. I actually, I still stand by what I said. He's still not worth it. And I, I don't think I'm worth either the dust on the Rashi's feet. It doesn't feet. sound like you. I doesn't, right? <laughs> I just... You've
1: got to have something to apologize for. Yeah, him. well, <laughs>
0: I did apologize to him. I but that. I said to him that there's a, there's a Gemara that talks about, uh, about, about the dust of... There's a few times it talked about the dust of the Tzaddikim. And to sit in the dust of the Tzaddikim is a big merit. Right, we should try to always sit in the dust of the tzaddikim, you know, uh, s- to submit ourselves to them. So I said, it's not—it's not that bad of a of a barb. Oh, okay. it so depends it was...
1: on the person receiving the
0: barb. He—he he took it fine. He, he was, was spiritually. Uh, I guess of all of all the people that I could have said that to, oh, um, you've but been lucky to get out alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this That's yeah. Texas, Yes, exactly. Uh But I, I I still stand by what I said. So I'm not I'm not re- retracting it because. Really, like we have to appreciate Rashi. Rashi is remember his acronym uh, is. Many people say the word Rashi stands for Rabban Shel Yisrael, the Teacher of Israel. And we know it's. You ask any student of the Torah, any certainly a student of the Talmud, what would your life in scholarship be without Rashi? And the answer, if they're being honest, it would be that it's in shambles, incomplete, because it's 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 unfathomable to us today how scholarship and study was possible before Rashi. Uh, it's so indispensable, Steve.
1: I need you to clarify something. If you've already gone through it and I missed it, I apologize. But did you just say a moment, a few minutes ago, that when we're talking about with or without the, ver- without the verse about um, uh, you live by them, you die by them. Yes. Uh, not die by them. Uh, did you say that Rashi said that? But, but but then I'm trying to connect it with these the three things that, that you don't do even adultery, uh, murder, and what was idolatry. Idolatry. Okay, so I, I'm still not clear on what Rashi's saying. The conclusion is so even with that verse, you still it's still unacceptable to do murder, adultery. And well, adultery.
0: clearly everyone agrees to the law. The Talmud establishes the law, and that is all the other six hundred and ten mitzvahs. You're allowed. In fact, even encouraged to do, to transgress and not, uh, uh, and not die. But these three, uh, you're encouraged to give up it's your an life. It's an However, the, the, oh. the mechanics of that and how this verse plays in is in disagreement. Right? What would happen without that verse is the question. If we didn't have that verse, what, what would we think? According to one opinion, we would think that you would still transgress... Uh, and save your life, and according to, according to Rashi's opinion, what's clearly borne out from his, from what he says and what he doesn't say, it's clear that he believes that if we did not have that verse, we would we would be required to give up our lives for everything. But I'm saying, that's not, Rashi himself doesn't spell that out, but that's all extracted from his text.
1: It's just part of the, it's, he's just saying this is the process, but he, he's, is he basically implying then therefore, to save a life, however whacked out this is, to save a life, it's okay to murder and Because of that. No, of course not. Of course, okay course not. In of course not. Cases. No,
0: no, 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 no. Nope. Everyone agrees to the law in the, 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 the sum total of the law, everyone agrees that we give up our lives and not transgress murder, idolatry and adultery, and we transgress every other sin. Okay. Everyone agrees to that law. that the Talmud itself establishes. However, the mechanics of how the verse of "you should live by them and not die by them," uh, what that actually contributes towards this law is is what's in flux. According to one opinion, it's just telling you to not compare the, the these three cardinal sins to everywhere else. And according to Rashi, it itself is telling you that you have to, that you're allowed to give up. The no, you it, ought to transgress to not and is, not save and to save a life.
1: Is it another way of saying that these are such egregious sins? Is it, I mean uh, that that there is basically no uh, there's no justification under any sort. Clearly way.
0: that clearly that that's born out in the Talmud itself. The only thing that we're discussing right now is what role does that verse play?
1: That's, I mean I'm, just, I'm saying but I'm just it but it,
0: this my, uh, it's, it's yes and 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 by the way how would that make a difference is an interesting question but like this is way beyond the, like I said this is beyond the page of what the Talmud actually says it,
1: it's I just think yeah. it's ironic because in today's society adultery is yeah I is have a, a real joke with that one. yeah I, think I mean to think that that's think considered that is, so agreeable and funny. I think it is don't get me wrong uh, because of the implications that it does to society but and, and to, to to children and all that, but still, it's it's kind of in Europe. If you if you don't sleep around, you're considered a, as a politician. You're considered kind of a flake. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's getting that it doesn't way. Here. happen in the United it's getting
0: States, getting that way here. <laughs> now, uh, but about, uh, but thing, uh, you know. Now that you brought that up, Uh-oh. we'll go way off topic now as well here. Uh, if you remember what happened with Abraham, so Abraham has Sarah. She's really beautiful. Uh, And he's traveling to Egypt, and he tells his wife, "Make believe that you're my sister, because if you're my wife, they'll kill me to have you." Remember that?
1: Yeah, Yeah. something about. Well, what
0: what, what does that imply?
1: Because why do they need to kill him? He's trying to find a loophole because he's he's committing adultery. If if it's not so,
0: what what, what's clear is that in ancient societies, in ancient societies, societies, adultery was a big no no. But murder happened every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, Say that again. so if if, Say if
1: that
0: again. I'm saying it's clear that in, in in the Egyptian society of the time, adultery was you know unheard of, was the most taboo thing possible. But murder, that's okay. So Abraham is saying, if you're my wife, they'll murder me because they want you. Well, why would they murder you? Just take you take her by force. Well, no, that's adultery. Huh? That's a, that's a no-no. That, that
1: implies that he's giving up Sarah to be raped. Anyway, it's just that he's not getting
0: killed first. Oh, okay. Well, that's that, that that's a good question. That, that you know, that, that that's a question so what, what what was Abraham thinking? What was the end game here? And ironically, she wasn't raped. Well,
1: that's good. But it wasn't for lack of nothing that it didn't happen.
0: Well, okay, but uh, maybe Abraham knew what that that we uh, you know, maybe Abraham could spell this out. It's a good question. You're asking a good question. I'm not, it's a good question. Can we but let's. Biography. Yeah, I know. But let's. Atle- yes. Let's, Before
1: somebody gets raped.
0: Or something. <laughs> uh, but clearly, we see that in ancient societies, they viewed uh, adultery as much worse than, than murder. And our society has flipped the coin. Now, which one is right? Which one's wrong? Well, the Torah says that they're both wrong. Uh, that you know that that you know adultery. Uh, is unacceptable uh, and murder, you know, we certainly agree that it's unacceptable.
1: And in regards to the idolatry, we have the example of the three young men who, uh, in Daniel, who, uh, you know, the the decree went out, you've got to bow down to this statue and we we won't do it. And they said, we don't know if our God will save us or not, but we do know this, we will not do that.
0: Absolutely. And there's many examples like that. you know, we're talking about Rashi's time Rashi, remember Rashi lived in the run up to the uh, to the crusades the first crusades of the year, 1096 right uh, so he lived for the majority of his life in very calm and well at least relative a facade of tranquility in Europe uh, that was going to change in a major major way in, in the end of his life we know that Rashi in the end of his life had to flee France like many of Oh, we don't know that Okay, but uh, we know that he died in the year 1105, uh, and so if, at the age of think of at the age of 55, he's writing this tremendous commentary of on Torah, of on Talmud. Uh, he has a student. He has a, he has a yeshiva of, of you know many many students. biggest Yeshiva in France, and now the Crusades are happening, and think about what kind of chaos that. Uh, that uh, engenders in, 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 in his life. But we know that o- o- throughout the course of history, the past thousand years, there's many, many examples of Jews that have given up their lives to, uh, uh, to prevent or to avoid um, idolatry or any variant of idolatry or to stay true to their faith. So there's many examples like that even in, in modern contemporary times. So you the, the now,
1: the of course, many,
0: many, many, many examples of that there. Um, okay, so... Let's talk about uh, Zerashi's contributions. Zerashi said he wrote a commentary on all of Torah, all of Tanakh, all of Talmud. Not only that, he spawned hundreds, if not thousands, of what's known as super commentaries. A super commentary is a commentary on a commentary. We know that the Ramban, Ramban uh, Nachmanides, uh, who lived a hundred and some odd years later, he wrote a tremendous commentary on the Torah, but it's actually a commentary on Rashi's commentary on the Torah. But there's hundreds and hundreds of commentaries written on Rashi uh, a, as well. Uh, so we know he was born, we don't know, but he was born in, uh, in Troyes, which is spelled T-R-O-Y-E-S, but somehow the French pronounce it Troyes. Uh, in the year 1040, he, uh, his father was, we know his name, was Rabbi Yitzchak. We don't know a lot of details, but I'll tell you stories. There are stories that have been said over and over and over by Rashi's, uh, before Rashi's birth, uh, that have repeated so often, it's unclear if it's legend or it's, in fact, history. Uh, but we know Rashi's an only child, and his father was, this is a story that hasn't been verified, uh, but it's been said so often, and I've heard it so many times. Maybe it's a legend, maybe it's true, but his father was a gem dealer, and apparently there was, uh, he had this really exquisite gem that the, that the church, the local church, has, had set its eyes on it. And they wanted to use it for some sort of uh, adornment to a certain cross. And Rabbi Yitzhak, a really pious Jew, was like, no way, I'm not selling my gem to have it adorn some cross. So he refused to sell him, and they finally caught him. They put him on a boat. And they were, they were forcing him, you know—on pain of death, you better sell it to us. We'll pay you what it costs, but sell us this gem. So he takes the gem and he flungs it into the sea and said, I'd rather lose this tremendous gem, this tremendous stone, uh, rather that than have it adorn uh, some, some, uh, some Christian, some Catholic um, vestment." Uh, and the legend goes that, or the story goes, uh, that there was this prophetic announcement that you gave up the gem, Uh, But you'll have a gem that will uh, outshine the gem that you lost. Uh, That's the story. And of course, we know that his son became Rashi, uh, who is a gem that we still cherish till this day. Um, That's one story. Whether or not it's true or whether or not it was embellished, like I said, I'm I'm saying that that caveat. I don't know, but I've heard it many times, and it's a well-known story that's been said over and over. Uh, Another story that's been told uh, that... Uh, his mother's his parents lived moved to Worms during his gestational period, uh, so they're in Worms in, in what's now Germany. And uh, they, she was walking in a very narrow alley, and in the distance, a, uh, a, a carriage, a horse uh, was was barreling towards her. It was really narrow, and she was going to be crushed. And suddenly, this crevice appeared in the wall, and she was able to find refuge in the crevice and stay alive and, of course, preserve her precious uh, embryo that would come on, uh, you know, that would become Rashi. Uh, this legend or story goes on to say that the crevice is still visible in worms, even though I haven't seen any pictures online of it, uh, either way. Whether that story is true or not, it does clearly demonstrate the, the impact, and the legacy, and the lore of Rashi uh, till this day.
1: Which part of France is?
0: Troyes is in a place, uh, uh, I think it's in northern France. It's in. Uh, it's, New Germany, obviously. Yes, yes. Do oh. uh, okay, we know that, we don't oh, know much true. about Rashi's childhood. Yes. We know that he was an only child, which obviously would lend credence to this idea of, of him being born out of this miracle. Um, or, or, or this, you know, in merit of his father, maybe they were infertile or whatever, and, and in merit of some great deed that his parents did, they merited to have a child. Who knows? Uh, we don't know much about his childhood. We do know that he went to study Torah in, in, in the Yeshiva. And we know that in, in, at that time there was a tremendous institution in Worms. Uh, and we know that he studied by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Ben Yakar. Uh, what's interesting about Rashi is that, uh, uh, unlike all his contemporaries, it's very hard to trace his rabbinic legacy. Uh, We know that he is a descendant of King David uh, via one of the authors of the Mishnah. That is well known. What isn't so well known as to exactly who he received his Torah education for, uh, he writes in his commentaries of his teachers, primarily Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar uh, as his primary teacher, other teachers as well that he does mention in his commentaries as my teacher. Uh, but these are not as well known as the other scholars uh, who uh, who taught and spawned other uh, other students.
1: I didn't know he was a descendant of King David. Oh yes. So could he have been the Messiah?
0: It's possible. Uh, we but know did he's he not.
1: Right that he thought he could be. Or? He never
0: wrote that. Uh, uh, remember, we we have very little of Rashi's writing aside from his commentary. We do have. Uh, responsa that he wrote. Marash became a rabbi of his town when he moved back, being a rabbi and a Rosh Hashiv of his town. Uh, and the role of a rabbi was to answer halachic queries. So we do have about 300 halachic responsa that were collected together uh, in a book. That, that, that's the ones that we have left. Uh, undoubtedly, there were many, many others that are gone, um, that have disappeared in t- into the annals of history. Uh, but besides for that we really don't have a lot of, of, of Rashi's other writings. You know, the Rambam wrote so many different kinds of writings that the commentary of all Mishnah, he collected all of uh all of all of Halacha and organized it uh in a tremendously accessible fashion. We know that he wrote the uh letters all these different kinds of letters, he wrote different communities. He wrote, of course, books on philosophy, He wrote books on, on medicine. There's many, many books that we have today uh, on medicine, all these different treatises and all these different kinds of exotic medicines. Uh, Rashi, we don't really have much aside from uh, exhaustive commentary on all of Talmud and exhaustive commentary on all of Torah and Tanakh. So did he
1: ever see the Holy Land? Did he ever see uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem?
0: Or? It's unlikely. There is a legend that Rashi, tra- that Rashi traveled to every little part, uh, every Jewish community, and that would probably include the Jewish community, the small Jewish community in Israel. But it's unlikely that that's true. Um, I, I think that um, uh, to accomplish a lot in life, you probably have to sit down and buckle down. If you know what I mean. Uh, it's very hard to be well-traveled uh, and to be a scholar of notes. We know the Ramam traveled a lot, but that was yeah. mostly based out of necessity. Uh, he was born in, in Spain, he spent some of his formative years in North Africa and moved to, to Egypt, had a, you know, a cup of coffee as they say in Israel, but came back to Egypt. Uh, that we know, like that's documented, uh, but that was born out of necessity. The people that accomplish, a lot of the people that dedicate themselves to their task. If you're going to write a monumental commentary on all of Torah and all of Talmud, it's probably not the best career advice <laughs> for you to go uh, on. Speak. Uh, yeah, or, or uh, certainly not on, 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 you know, Torah. So we know he did flee France in the end of his life to, um, to evade the brutality of the Crusades.
1: Does he go to Russia?
0: Uh, not that I know of.
1: There was no Russia
0: at the time. Well, the place that we now know as Russia. That's it was steps. There
1: was
0: yeah. nothing there. Okay, is there so. A portrait? There is a portrait as to the accuracy of these portraits that are so old, who knows? There's this famous image of Rashi. If you Google it, you'll see a picture of him like a, with a big beard, with a candle hovering over some manuscript. Oh. Uh, to say that that would be an accurate depiction of him is, is I think, maybe a, a little bit of a stretch. Uh, because we know that he had a yeshiva, he had a very vibrant yeshiva. So he was engaged with students, and we could assume that his commentaries were not written in solitude and seclusion, but rather in collaboration, uh, as is the best way to study—collaboration with other people—to compare and contrast, and to have the uh, the, the the gift of uh, of of the uh, of the untrained eye, or, or or the unseasoned, or maybe not the you know. If Rashi, remember Rashi's for everyone. Um, there's another example of this. There was another monumental book written in the late 19th, early 20th century called Mishneh Brura. Mishneh Brura is a commentary on a section of the Shulchan Aruch. You know, we're getting kind of we're, we're we're jumping a little bit over here, but uh, it's written by the was uh, someone who we know today as the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi. Uh, Yisrael Meir HaKohen Kagan, uh, he died in 1933. And when he had his, his, this is a book of very practical Jewish law, and he re- wrote the book and his editors were laymen. And he specifically wanted laypeople to read it over because he wanted it to be understood by laypeople. You know, if you are a great scholar, uh, and you're writing a book in seclusion. It's very likely going to be on your level, and it's on your level. It's very uh, unhelpful un- or not, it's not very useful for other people. We find this. Uh, this I'm sure I'm sure there's examples in, in you know in every domain, but certainly in Jewish scholarship, we have two kinds of books. We have books that are very useful and bu- books that are very you know very. This is genius, but it's not written in a way that's very uh, consumable for other people. Uh, I have an uncle, this is interesting, I have an uncle who's, uh, who's a Rosh Hashiva in Israel and he's a legitimate genius, like one of the, like a wild genius, like he has to have his glasses attached in the back otherwise he'd lose them, you know uh, and I, in his house he has these stats upon stacks upon stacks of notes, on, Torah notes. I once was felt like like flipping through them and I'm, and I'm reading it, and it's written beautiful Hebrew and 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 like it's not clear where the lines even go. Like I can't even I don't even know. Do I go to the next page? Do I go jump here? It's just it's ramblings of a genius mind. Uh, and then I asked his wife, my aunt, and she said, "Even he doesn't understand it after he writes it." So she said about him. So while you can have you know that's kind of like genius that's caught up in a bottle or in a box that doesn't doesn't you know. And then there's the tremendous uh, marriage of a genius who's able to tailor his writings in a way that's understood by others. Rashi is someone who is able to incorporate tremendous genius in words that are understandable by by everyone, and in a way that, like we said, it stales. Anyone who approaches the Torah or the Talmud, Rashi is holding their hand, no matter if they're the beginner of all beginners or if they're the most seasoned scholar around. So, to, so the image of Rashi studying by himself in seclusion is a little bit uh, of a dubious one. Um, you know, he lived a long time ago. To say that there's any accurate portrayals of what it looked like uh, is, it seems like a, a, it's unlikely. We know that there's a very, very famous picture, picture of the Rambam as well. Um, who knows if these things are even accurate? Uh, okay, so he, he spends his years studying... Uh, in the yeshiva, first in Worms and then in, in, in Mainz. Uh, and ultimately, at the age of 25, he moves back to Troyes, where he re- were to remain, uh, obviously, with the exception of the times where he was escaping, uh, for the rest of his life. Rashi supported himself as a winemaker, a vintner. Uh, we know that uh, that part of France uh, is, is a ma- it was a main city and it had lots of orchards and lots of vineyards around. Uh, but it also had this fair. There was twice a year that there was a fair. Uh, so it was a commercial center. But uh, the Jews at that time were uh, businessmen like they are today, right? Jews are, are, you know, we're good at business. We always were. Uh, so that place, you know, whenever you have a convention center that there's a lot of business done, invariably, very a lot of Jews there, uh, and in ancient times, that would also create not only a commercial center, but also a center where a lot of scholarship would happen. Because if all the Jews converge upon a certain city, they kind of turn that city into a, uh, a Torah center as well. So Rashi was kind of at the, you know, in, in the middle of all of this uh, because he did support himself and his family as, as a winemaker uh, and also, of course, was the greatest scholar of his generation. Um, as to what exactly he did, there's uh, articles written uh, in scholarship uh, as to what was, did he produce the wine, did he, uh, did he just sell the wine, was he just a merchant? We know that he did experience some gri- grinding poverty, so maybe he was a probably a much better scholar than he was a businessman. Uh, or probably in, 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 you know, it's more likely that the truth was that he spent so much time studying that he didn't really prioritize his business. Um, Who knows how many great Torah scholars, not quite Rashi's, but how many great Torah scholars, you know, dedicated their minds towards pursuits that brought them away from Torah and who knows what kind of legacy they could have had, right?
1: So he didn't put in a full three-hour workday like Mamadi's?
0: Probably not. uh, Yeah, a full three-hour workday. Much written
1: about his wife?
0: So there's, much, uh, there's many legends about his, primarily his daughters. Uh, I don't know if we know much about his wife, but his daughters, there's a lot written about them. Uh, they were, you know, in the, the, the um, modern feminists, they love his daughters, because there's all these legends that they, that, uh, oh, this book of the Talmud wasn't written by, Ra- was written by Rashi, it was written by Rashi's daughters, this is written by Rashi's daughters, they, they wrote that, they studied they, they, they worked philin, all these things are unsubstantiated. Uh, we don't know much about his daughters. Uh, fact, we don't know much facts about his daughters other than they were his daughters and were married to many of his students and, of course, were the forebearers of the great schools of the Tosafos that emerged from, uh, from Rashi's house, the house of Rashi. You know, Rashi's grandchildren. We know, we know the names of Rashi's grandchildren because they appear in every page of the Talmud in the form of the Tosophos. Uh So we don't know many details uh, there's, like I said, there's a lot of legend, but not many uh, details um, uh, of Rashi's family. In Rashi himself, Rashi's personal life is very unknown. Uh, there's, like I said, we don't know if he was a winemaker. Most people say that. Was he a wine merchant? And there's even someone who says he wasn't any of that. He was just a professional rabbi. Who knows? Uh, he didn't write an autobiography. Uh, it's interesting to kind of... Wonder how many great Jewish minds were dedicated to pursuits other than Torah and what the world would have looked like if we had those minds dedicated to Torah. And conversely, um, you know, if Einstein was in Yeshiva, would he be the best student in Yeshiva? Maybe. Maybe he would have been an average student. Uh, You know, his feats of genius and his creativity is something that we find. a dime a dozen almost in a yeshiva environment. So who's to say, means who's to say which impact would have been greater if Einstein went to yeshiva or if, yeshiva went to oh, if the yeshiva to went the right. to the laboratory, right? That,
1: that's why I asked you in the beginning, uh, are we talking about, you know, scriptural time or, or well, Maimonic, uh, uh, Rashi's time or <coughs> contemporary time? Because you could certainly make an argument that Jonas Salk... Uh, Einstein, uh, Dr. Edward Teller, guys like that had, you know, at least on our modern society, major, major
0: impact. Or look at Marx. Be, Karl Marx. Karl Marx, another or nice young Jewish boy, but very sure. impactful. Sure. You know, uh, Sigmund Freud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. A lot of people like that, but in modern times, you know, it's you know, Jews are innovative and impactful and um, contribute. In a major way to every industry that they take that they partake in. Um in the
1: late Middle Ages, religious canonical pursuits <laughs> were probably the only oh, one yourself. which
0: are open to <laughs> men of genius. Either yes, that's true. Or that's true. Some sort of a military thing, and Jew, uh, for Jews, it's not really an option. Yes. Taylor was
1: Jewish? Ooh, oh yeah. Teller Dr. Tell, absolutely. Oppenheimer. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so what, what what was it like in yeshiva? I imagine we took ourselves back and say, okay, we're we with Rashi, we're on the same bench in, as him in the yeshiva, uh, first in Worms and in Mines. What's life like? You know, so we know that this is before the printing press. So you're studying the text of the Talmud. What are you studying? What language would they have been studying? in? You would assume it would be in French. That's what you'd assume. Back to well, I think that was still part of France at the time. Um, but, you know, but what, what butch are you using? But, Babylonian Talmud. But, but there's no copies of Babylonian Talmud. So the answer is like this. The first thing that you did when you got to a yeshiva was you copied by hand the entire text of the Talmud, of the tract, of the book of the Talmud that you're studying. Maybe there was one copy of every other book of Talmud that the entire institution shared. But if you wanted to study, what are you going to study? So you'd copy by hand, copiously, word after word, verbatim, every word of the book. And how long would it take? It I would probably take a while, right? This is not, this is not a small amount of, of, of data. But
1: wasn't paper
0: extremely expensive? And imagine what kind of care and delicacy they would treat uh, their, their books with. So that's number one, like, okay, now, how accessible is the Torah and the Talmud for us today, and how difficult was it then? And imagine trying to become a scholar in all of Talmud, when all you have is a few precious precious copies of manuscripts of them that may be in your whole town. You know, in your whole town, there's one copy of Talmud. And you, someone like Rosh, you knew it all by heart. You
1: didn't have overhead projectors
0: then. Yeah, I don't imagine. I
1: didn't have the internet.
0: And not only that, uh, so that's where you start with. You maybe got, you have one booklet, one notebook that you have your copy of the time, but maybe if you were really wealthy, you would buy uh, one from an older student who, you know. But these two things were very precious. And by the way, if. A a lot of Rashi's contribution is also in trying to find the accurate text of the Torah of the Talmud, because what happens if everything is copied by hand? How easy is it for a mistake to fall into the text? Obviously, it's seemingly easy. So you have this one copy, one notebook uh, covered, um, covering the um, the tractate, and you have another notebook where you write your notes. So you have a lecture and the teacher's teaching you, and you're analyzing the text of the Talmud, you're trying to go as deep as you can, trying to understand exactly what's going on, understanding the nuance uh, in, the, in the words, and you're taking, you're taking your own notes, and you're explaining what things mean, and you're translating words that you don't understand, and you're explaining what's going on and between the lines. Remember, the, the text of the Talmud is a very, it's a very dense book. You're trying to understand everything that's going on between the lines, and every student would compile for themselves what's called a cuntras. kuntras is the word for a notebook uh, of, of, uh, of explanations of what's going on in the Talmud. Now, what Rashi did as a student was he collected all the notebooks of all the students and created a master kuntras, a master notebook that included all of the uh, all of the Explanations of all the other students. But not only that, that would be a very very big notebook. But what he did was, he distilled it. He, he had it sifted through, he edited it, he organized it, he abridged it, he adapted it, he corrected it in a way that he created this country of all countryses, this notebook of all notebooks. And this notebook was the beginning of what we call today Rashi. So, Like I said, it, is, it was a very collaborative effort it wasn't just Rashi and his own, but it was the, the, the understanding of all the students together, and all the teachers together, but of course, Rashi overseeing it all, and Rashi writing the final text of this, the, uh, of this copy. And we know this was distributed to his colleagues, to his students, uh, and this became a dominant book of its time. Uh, Rashi, at In the age...
1: this area, or is slowly sort of...
0: Oh, yeah, so it's, 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 it started there, but now it's, it's everywhere, of course. But it started, of course, in, in France. Uh, we know that we already find uh, books that are contemporary to Rashi that they quote the Kuntras. Whenever it says the word the Kuntras, this it's referring to Rashi. Even his grandchildren, who wrote the accompanying book, which is called the Tosos, which is the additions to the Kuntras, additions to the notebook, they refer to their grandfather, not by, Rashi says this, rather, the Kuntras says this. It, it, you know, it became uh, synonymous, right? The understanding, the Kuntras, which was the word that everyone had. Everyone had a kuntris. But now everyone had the Kuntras, which is the final, kind of the, the best job, and was ever done in explaining the Talmud. Thus, when Tosphos wants to ask a question to Rashi, he'll say, the Kuntras says this, but I disagree, or I have a question. What's going on with the Kuntras? even though they're referring to their own grandfather, who's Rashi. So when did
1: we start calling it
0: Rashi? Well, it's, it's still called the Kuntras today, but, uh, uh, you know, I, interesting. I, you know, it's, you know, we, we kind of say Rashi, but in the written works of the time, it's, it's written, it's called as the Kuntras. Um, I think we do find already um, of, of the era, eras, the Middle Ages, that some commentaries of the Middle Ages are referred to by Rashi. Um, but certainly in France at that time, it was it was it was well known as the country, and we see kind of how it developed. Uh, he got back to to Troyes uh, at the age of twenty five, so that'll be the year uh, ten sixty five, uh, and we know that he refined and re edited his original copy that he had written as a student, uh, and there was a second, more refined, more uh, uh, perfected edition of his commentary was written then. Uh, of course, Rashi is becoming a household name. Every student who's studying is like, we have this new method. Instead of writing your own contras, you just take the contras, Rashi. And of course, he, he, he spread like wildfire throughout France. So when he establishes his yeshiva uh, his, in, in Twa, he uh, it becomes the most popular yeshiva of the time. It supplants the institutions that have been around for hundreds of years in worms and in mines, and that becomes the central uh, uh, location of, of, of scholarship uh, in France. We know that Rashi spent a third time uh, revising and editing uh, his commentary. There are those that say he did it even a fourth time. But ultimately, the reason why it's so concise and it's so perfect is because he spent really his life uh, doing that uh, uh Editing and re-editing and re- you know, perfecting and perfecting and perfecting his commentary on, uh, on the Talmud. Um, there are some books, like I said, and it's amazing how we could suffer today uh, because of what happened. You know, there are those that theorize that the reason why some of his commentaries were, not, were written only, were copied only once but not, weren't perfected a second time or a third time was because of the Crusades. There are those that theorize that that is the reason why. And who means it's possible that the reason why we have a hard time today studying the book of Nazir is because of the Crusades. Because they disrupted Rashi's ability to take that particular book and give it a second and a third uh, uh, run-through. You know, I have a brother-in-law who just got married a week ago, a week and a half ago. And he's telling, him, so, and he's a, he's a, he's, he spent his many years in yeshiva, and he's, he's, he completed entire orders of, of the Talmud. So the Talmud is split into six different orders, and he finished two of them. And he said, do you finish them all? I said, no, he still has 40 pages left in the book of Nazir. But it's so hard.
1: <laughs>
0: Nazir. Nazir covers the laws of a Nazir. Nazir is someone who sets upon himself the oath of Nazirus to spend a minimum of 40 days uh, not... Uh, not uh, drinking wine, not coming in contact with dead people, uh, shaving. Very hard. I studied it. Very hard. And it's compounded by the fact that we have a primitive form of Rashi. So really, in 900 years, there was no scholar ambitious enough to go say, oh, they, do it once over, but it was never, never accepted at the same level. So well, it, not just it wasn't accepted, no one has the goods. No, no one can deliver what Rashi delivers. Uh, and, you know, it's... It is it is uh, in in one book um, we have uh, the Ran, was uh, was uh, came a little bit after Rashi but one of the great rabbis of that era uh, he wrote a commentary but his commentary is very different than Rashi because it's so much it's so much wordier so much more verbose wherein Rashi would st- explain everything with four words and like beautiful. It's just amazing how he's able to but still 900 years that we had such a bright shining stars. Uh yeah, so we have no, other stars, but no no one it? no no one no one did the job. It's amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, we have Indeed, in the book of Babastron and page 28A the peer, the Rashis explanation stops and the work the work of the Rashbam starts and it's a different book afterwards. You study it till then it's one book. And you study the book afterwards. It's a different book, of course. The text to the Talmud precedes them by a thousand years, uh, not quite a thousand, seven hundred years. But who's counting? Um, certainly. But Rashi, as the accompan—when you study the Talmud, you're studying with Rashi, and then you have Rashi for twenty-eight pages, and suddenly you don't have Rashi anymore. And the Rashbam is good, of course, fantastic, wonderful, but he's not quite the scholar. Oh, well, not scholar, but certainly the commentator that his. Grandfather was, and it's a different book. And suddenly the pages, like if you look at, if you were to just flip through a Baba Basra, right, you would notice something very interesting. You would notice that in the beginning, the first 28 pages, the pages of the Talmud, like, like we said, at every page of the Talmud, you have three primary sections. You'll have the middle section, which is the actual touch of the Talmud, the inner margin is going to be the text of Rashi, and the outer margin is the text of Tosvos. Well, you'll notice as you Right, the first twenty-eight pages of the text of the Talmud is very big because Rashi is always very succinct. You get to twenty-eight pages, some of the pages shrink because the commentary of the Rashbam to try to do Rashi's job, he couldn't do it in the same amount of, of with the same limitations that Rashi placed upon himself in writing things as succinctly as Rashi did, and therefore the pages shrink because the commentary takes up more of the page. Okay, so uh, Rashi, of course, wrote on all of Tanakh. And like we said, it's remarkable that the very first time a young student starts studying Chomish and you start studying Genesis, you read it with Rashi. And the last time you do it, as an advanced scholar, uh, you um, would also study with Rashi. Uh, Some of the techniques of Rashi, he would answer a question by just answering and it's made. There's a book written in English. It's a book. It's called "What's Bothering Rashi," which sounds bizarre. It's a bizarre. I mean, it's a bizarre thing if you've never been inside the walls of a yeshiva. That title is a bizarre title for a book. But if you spent even a half hour in yeshiva, it makes a lot of sense because the way to fully appreciate the commentary of Rashi is to ask that question. Why is Rashi saying what he's saying? Because very frequently, he's invoking a question that he's not even writing. And he's telling you the answer, and why are you telling me this? Oh, because you had a question. There was something that was bothering Rashi. The text of the Torah, the text of the Talmud, there's an obvious question that's unnamed, And Rashi's giving you the answer without even giving you the question. So this book is like, okay, let's try to deconstruct every Rashi and see what was his problem, what what was his premise, and thus what's his solution, but he writes it all in four words. The The original Jeopardy. The original Jeopardy, yeah, interesting. Um, I I always like to talk about this Rashi, for example, to give you guys another illustration. Um, we, We talk about the templates at the beginning of our discussion. Um and so you asked about the ten plagues, Janet, and if you look at there's a, a one-word rashi, which are always the best, right? One word rashi. Uh where uh, the tenth plague, death of the firstborn. And uh, of course, in the middle of the night, all the firstborn die, and Pharaoh gets up and is frantically looking for Moshe, Get get out of here, get out of here quickly, right? So, Vayakamparo and Pharaoh got up. Rashi says one word, mimitaso, which means from his bed. And it goes on to tell us why everything happened. And like I said, what's bothering Rashi? Like, well, what's Rashi adding? Pharaoh was sleeping in a bed, he wasn't sleeping on a sofa. What's going on over here? Right? But if you actually understand what Rashi is telling you, you find a whole other element to the whole story. Moses. Moses goes and tells Pharaoh that in the middle of the night, all the, death of the, first, all the firstborn are going to die. What happens in the middle of the night? All, firstborn all the firstborn die. die. And Pharaoh gets up from his bed. What does it tell us about Pharaoh?
1: He was not firstborn.
0: He well, he was firstborn, but, he didn't or he but was. despite having nine perfectly uh, prophetic examples of the prescience of, of Moshe, he was calm enough to be sleeping in bed. So Rashi just now, in with one word, gives us an entire perspective of the whole, of the whole, of the whole episode. i give you another example here. Jacob is about to die in the Genesis. He calls over Joseph and tells him, and makes him swear that you're not going to bury me in Egypt, take me to Israel, bury me with my father and grandfather in the moros Machpelah, in the cave that they bought, bury me there. So Rashi says, he calls over to Joseph, he who has the ability to make it happen. Right? So, what's Rashi adding? Jacob's about to die. He knows he's about to die. He calls over Joseph. He makes a request from Joseph. Rashi says, he asks Joseph because Joseph has the ability to effect change. Well, of course Joseph has the ability. To, he's the king, right? What's he adding to the story? It seems to me, this is my interpretation of Rashi, that Rashi has a question and is giving you the answer. And the question that Rashi has, but remember, is unnamed, It's not mentioned. The question Rashi has is that Jacob went down this route before of preferring Joseph to the rest of the brothers. And how did that end? Pretty poorly. And the question that Rashi is asking is, wait a minute. Jacob has 12 able-bodied children. And the last time that he gave preferential treatment to Joseph, it was disastrous why is Jacob suddenly going to ask Joseph, again, seemingly making the same mistake he did prior? And he's answering by telling you that Joseph was unique because he was the only one that could affect that change. What it's telling us is that Jacob, indeed, made a change in how he treated his children. Jacob started off, and he preferred Joseph, and he gave him the nice tunic, and he would study with him, and he was his favorite. And then it, was, it caused a tremendous disaster. You know, Joseph had the dreams, of course, and ultimately it ended up with Joseph being 22 years away from his father and all the tribulations that brought the Jewish people to Israel. Jacob took that to heart and said, I am no longer going to give preferential treatment to any of my children. So why is he suddenly asking Joseph and not anyone else? Because Joseph had the ability to affect change. So four words, Rashi's telling you a question, an answer, a perspective on on the transformation of Jacob. And that's in every page of the Torah and every page of the Talmud. Uh, certainly, Rashi was, like we said, uh, maybe was he was he a genius? I think it's quite, you know. Uh, I, I don't, I'm saying I don't know of any of anyone that would imagine otherwise. Uh, Rashi knew all of Tanakh by heart. Uh, he was he would able to tell you any time a word appears in Tanakh. Rashi was able to study all of Talmud and write uh, 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 write a commentary that makes it possible for us today to study Talmud and makes it wonderful. Like there's certain, there's a certain beauty of 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 rashi's commentary um, it's 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 you know very frequently like, like like rashi rephrases something where um you know he he enlivens the book you know he, whatever 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 text you're trying to understand rashi will, will will present it in a certain way that makes it beautiful you know uh, like we said, I, I think it's a very fair say. A, f- a, f- a fair, f- a fair thing to say is that Jewish learning would be impossible without Rashi. Um, the Torah is not written with punctuation. The Talmud is certainly not written with punctuation. Rashi will tell you as follows: like this is a question, or this is being asked in wonderment, or this is there's a surprise, or um, uh, you know, he'll give you the context. He'll say, "Well, Tal- the Talmud in a few pages, we'll discuss that." Anytime Rashi tells you, by the way. The Tal- you have a Mishnah, and you have the Gemara. The Talmud will further ask this question. Or the Gemara will explain, the, the Gemara later on will explain this, Talmud later on will explain this. That too is a question. That too is saying, logically there is a question that's obvious right here. And by the way, I usually answer those kinds of questions. But, because the Talmud itself will do it later on, I'm going to tell you, wait, the question will be answered by the Talmud himself I mean Rashi's like you know now everyone's always scared of spoilers right like, like uh, so you're watching a television series Bernie like oh you got, don't tell me spoilers oh don't tell me right everyone's obsessed with spoilers Rashi was the first one to tell you this spoiler alert the Talmud will ask that question so when you see a Rashi that says the Talmud will explain what's going on over here you have to realize that Rashi's asking a question that really you should be asking as well and he's telling you, normally, I fulfill the role of asking this question that's unnamed and giving you the answer, but because the Talmud itself will ask that, hold on, wait for it. Uh, I was once studying, um, I was studying with, I remember as a, as a very young child, I was studying Chumash, the Torah, with Rashi, uh, with my dad. That must have been seven or whatever. And he said to me, This is a very the next Rashi is a very, very important Rashi. What could it be, right? What, what's what, what's Rashi saying? So the next Rashi, we read the next Rashi, Odea Pirusho. I don't know what this means. Several times the Rashi says, I don't know. And indeed we can echo the words of the Talmud. A person should get used to saying, I don't know. That is a very, very good explanation or answer to a question. It's a very good answer to a question. To say, I don't know, it's a good answer. You don't have to know everything. And it's amazing. Rashi, how's <laughs> the Rashi doesn't know? Rashi is teaching us also a lesson as well. Maybe if you don't know, don't write a commentary, right? <laughs> you don't know? Okay, we'll skip that one. No. He said, I don't know. And I'm going to write it. I don't know. And you to know that it's okay to know, to, to, to know that you don't know. That, that too is a lesson. And indeed, maybe those rashis teach us more than any other rashis. There's a remarkable... How about, go ahead. Just my question. This, um, in Hebrew,
1: what is, probably the last night, It says, from uh, Isaac, um, sorry, um, Abraham, was says, please bring your... Your only son
0: that you love. Your firstborn years yes. Yeah, but the word please, is in nah, yes, nah, the word nah. It is means. Yes, yes. You can take a look at that Rashi. I would advise you to look at that Rashi. That's what I want. See what he says. Please, right? uh, Rashi's son-in-law. He, his sons-in-law were great scholars of their own right. Uh, the various gaps of his of of of, of scholarship uh, uh, that we don't have are filled in by his sons-in-law. So there's a very interesting little um, uh, eulogy that his son-in-law gives for him. Uh, In the book of Makros, uh, page 19b, uh, the book only goes to page 24. So 19b, it says as follows. So Rashi is saying, um, the, the, the last word that Rashi writes is tahor. Tahor means pure. There's a discussion about about a, about a certain kind of law of purity and impurity. Rashi says is uh, the, the the theme that Rashi ends with is is is, is pure. So the um, the text of Rashi continues. Our teacher, his body was pure, and his soul left with purity, and he didn't he didn't. Uh, elaborate, he didn't explain, he didn't comment any further, from here, henceforth is the words of his student Rabbi Yehuda Barnasson, which was his son-in-law uh, what's interesting is that if you just read that it's oh, a, nice a nice little send-off to Rashi the Rashi, it's just incidentally the last word that he writes was the word Tahar, and then he died uh, but what's, what I discovered maybe other people knew this as well that there's a whole Talmud in the Book of Sanhedrin that has a discussion about the death of Rabbi Eliezer. Remember we talked about Rabbi Akiva, his teacher was Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer is one of the great uh, tragedies in Jewish history because he had a disagreement with his brother-in-law about the status of a certain oven, uh, and they disagreed so fiercely that he was excommunicated because he refused to accept the opinion of his brother-in-law, who was the head of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and in fact, even though Rabbi Eliezer brought what to us would be irrefutable evidence that he's right, still, in order to preserve the authority of the Sanhedrin, it became clear that unless he submits, he was going to be excommunicated. In fact, Rabbi Eliezer himself, uh, he brought evidence, he's like, if I'm right, let the waters of the river start flowing in the opposite direction. And, the people, and suddenly the river starts flowing in the opposite direction and people say, sorry, it's not a proof. And he's like, if I'm right, let there be a heavenly prof, pr- prophetic call that I'm right. And suddenly everyone hears a booming sound. Rabbi Ezzar's right. You guys are wrong. Listen to him. And they say, sorry. Torah's not in heavens. If we disagree with you, it doesn't matter what, what, uh, what you find. You know, this heavenly voice says. And he says to them, if I'm right, you see that tree? And they see a carib tree. And he said, let it be uprooted and let it move 100 a, part, a, a hundred, a hundred mil away. Suddenly, the tree gets uprooted and it gets moved, moved to the other, uh, other side of town.
1: Global warming.
0: <laughs> and he's like, if I'm right, let the walls of the basement measures cave in. Let the walls of the House of Scholarship cave in. Suddenly, the walls start caving in, and the walls forever will remain like that caved in. Sorry, this, that's what the Gemara says. This is a story written, documented in contemporary, in contemporary to, uh, uh, to, uh, to those people. And the walls start caving in, and sorry, it's not a proof, and if, you will, if you're refusing to submit, I don't care what proofs you bring, you're excommunicated. So the rest of his life he was excommunicated. And the Talmud talks about what happens when he was he was very sick, and all his students came to visit him. And he was sitting in his room, and they, of course, sat down, but they had to sit down four amos away from him. The laws of an excommunicated person is that you have to be you can't sit next to them. You have to sit like eight feet away from them. So they sit down.
1: Is that civil or religious or
0: both? It's religious. It's religious law. But religious law uh, in, uh, in, in the religious, when the Jews have sovereignty over Israel, even though they, at that time it wasn't clear if they actually had sovereignty, but the Jewish law was, I guess those two, those two were indistinguishable. So they sit four feet away from him, four amas away from him, and he says to them, "Why? why do you guys come to visit me? It says them we can't study Torah. She says, why, you, why didn't you come till now? So they respond, we didn't have any time. Mm-hmm. And then Rebbe Lezer tells to all the people, I will be shocked if any one of you die a natural death. Mind if tells you that. This is the guy who caved the walls of the, right, of the base medershin and made the river flow the other way. This is not the kind. Of, that's not the words you want to hear from him, right? You want to hear you should live and be well and be prosperous. That's what you want to be. That's what you want to hear. And then he says, "The first thing they sit down, I will be shot if any of you die a natural death." And Rabbi Yitiva tells him, "What about what about my death?" He says, "Your death is worse than all of theirs." Imagine how devastating that would be to hear that. And then, Rabbi, and this is a very long narrative. Rabbi Leah. Li- have insurance companies at the time? That might be a good idea, huh? Yeah. <laughs> to beef up your insurance policy. Catastrophic insurance. (laughs) Uh, Rabbi Lezer picks up his two arms, and he says, he puts them on his heart, and he says to them, woe unto you. My two arms are like two Torah scrolls. I studied a lot of Torah, and I taught a lot of Torah. I studied a lot of Torah, but I did not diminish from my teachers any more than a dog diminishes from an ocean by licking it. If you take a dog and you bring him to Venice Beach in California they start licking, lapping up some water from the Pacific Ocean, how much more is that? How much water, how, how much smaller is the ocean now?
1: Well, considering Nothing. the ocean is made of salt and a dog probably wouldn't lap it to start with. Mm. Well, okay, but so theoretically. Uh, dogs
0: in these days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not, it wouldn't
1: make it much smaller. Sorry about that. That's just... fair. You go to
0: a freshwater <laughs> lake.
1: Okay. It certainly, certainly wouldn't get rid of the all, to be politically correct, artistic people going up and down. That's that fair. So,
0: uh... You take your dog to Lake Ontario. <laughs> okay, no, we're, fair? Good,
1: we're good, we're good. <laughs> just, sorry, just...
0: And the dogs are lapping up some water. How much smaller is the lake? How much... It's... it's Nothing. So he says to them, "I studied a lot for my teachers, but the amount of Torah that they had, and compared to what I received from them, it's like a, like the few little flecks of water that the dog laps up from the from the ocean." I taught so much Torah, but none of my students diminished for me any more than than a than a, than a, uh, than a paint uh, a paintbrush dipped into a, a jar of paint. Not only that, he goes on to talk about the scholarship, and I taught three hundred laws and laws of of a of a of a of a of a, tzaras, of a splotch of skin, and no one asked me about him. And I taught three hundred laws, and maybe even three thousand laws of what happens of of the of, the, of the of of the obscure laws of sorcery and how you get an entire field to suddenly be populated with cucumbers very obscure law, and no one even asked me about it.
1: But the only way to get Torah into your soul is drop by drop.
0: Fair. That's very fair. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on over here, clearly, right? Um, but he's, like, he's, he's making this announcement. He's, he's very sick, and he's, 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 he's telling these people they're going to die an unnatural death, and he starts lamenting the fact they didn't have any real students. And he says, no one asked me about it, besides Rabbi Akiva, who was actually sitting in front of them, once we were walking together, and Rabbi Kiva told me, "Rebbe, teacher, teach me about how to plant cucumbers, which means teach me the laws of sorcery. And one of the common sorcery methods was to suddenly take a field and populate it with, with, uh, with cucumbers. And I was walking with Rabbi Kiva, and he asked me about that. I said one word, and suddenly the field next to me got full of, uh, full of cucumbers, and then Rabbi Tiva said to him, "Okay, Rabbi, you taught me how to plant them. How do you uproot them?" I said one more thing, and they all got bunched together in the middle. <laughs> That's he finished. He finished. <laughs> he finished his rant. He's finished his rant, and they started asking him about different, very obscure laws of purity and impurity. Uh, and they set uh, a list of things here. Rashi tells us what, of course, Rashi tells us what these things even mean. If you just read this, I don't know how you, back to our example. Uh, uh, They asked him about all these very obscure stuff, and they asked him about one thing, and he said, Tahar, it's pure, and he died. And the Gemara says, once again, the Gemara gives the same eulogy to Rabbi Eliezer that, that Rashi's student gives to him, he says he said the word tahar pure and his soul departed in purity. And they all got up, all his students, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi and, and, and Rabbi Tiva, and they undid the excommunication. And once now that he died, they undid his excommunication. Of course, it's a very like emotional, very tragic Gemara. But either way, I was thinking like it's 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 just amazing. Like we're, we're describing Rashi with the same veterans that we're giving uh, to uh, to to to, to Rabbi just it's you know just that he died in purity, which is just if you think about that, it's just a remarkable thing to say about about someone. Um, the legacy of Rashi, of course, you know we could talk about it in in any any terms you want to couch about Torah scholarship today, or Torah scholarship throughout history. Uh, or even anything that we're doing today. like any, any scholarship that we have, the Jews have today, the fact that the Torah is accessible, to whatever degree it still is accessible to us, is largely, in Torah learning, is largely due to Rashi. I would say that Torah observance and Torah practice is largely due to the Rambam. The debate that we can have today about their impact is, uh, is maybe only academic, because either one is impossible to the other. You can't have Torah observance certainly without Torah scholarship, and you can't have Torah scholarship in a vacuum. You know, we don't, we treat Torah as the word of God. You want to demote it to uh, to being any sort of domain, any sort of, of 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 other form of study, other wisdom that is taking Torah and making it not Torah. Um, who's to say what the world would look like without Rashi? Um, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine what scholarship today will be without Rashi, just like it's hard to imagine what Jewish life today will be without the Rambam. Uh, we know I- immediately after his life, uh, he, his school that he established flourished and grew, of course. Obviously, it was not an easy time to be a Jew, uh, but uh, we have hundreds upon hundreds of students that he left and his disciples and his quoted by his contemporaries. But I think to, ask the, to answer the question that we started off with, and that is, why is Rashi relevant today? That question is essentially the same question as, why is Jewish learning relevant today? Uh, The Torah is a book that's, according to Jewish tradition, um, 3,300 years old for us and even precedes the world. The Talmud is 1,500 years old. What's the relevance of those books today? And indeed, that's an argument we could have. Uh, I know that Dan uh, wants to have a series that we do here. Why we study Torah? Because I'm in the middle of a series elsewhere. I'm, I'm in, I just finished part ten last week of why we study Torah. I have right now collected I have 26 reasons why we study Torah, and this is not just about reasons that apply to Reasons that apply today, and to think about trying to do that without Rashi is unimaginable. So we could say that Rashi today is as relevant as he ever was because Jewish learning never stops because the world depends upon Jewish learning. We believe as Jews, the Talmud makes it clear that if there was even one second where there was no one studying Torah, we have a world that abandoned its purpose. Thus the world would cease to exist. It's a verse in the Torah, the Talmud says it makes it clear in the book of Shabbos, 88, in the book of Nidarim, 32. What's clear is that Jewish learning is what's keeping the world alive. For someone to say, oh, these people are studying Torahs," what are they contributing to society? What they don't realize is they're contributing life to society. The only reason why the rest of us can exist is because some people are dedicating themselves to Torah study. Thus, to improving the world, to bring morality to the world, to bring God to the world, to bring Tikkun Olam to the world. If we abandon that, we're abandoning our mission as, as a species and certainly as a people. And that is made possible due to the efforts of Rashi. So I think we could make the argument that Rashi indeed is the most impactful person that has lived in the past 1,000 years, but even today is impactful, not because of his contributions a 1,000 years ago, but because what he enables us to do today. And I think we have to be very thankful and appreciative of Rashi for what he did, and we should, you know, I would maybe make a clarion call for us to get our hands on a book of Rashi. Get our hands on this. Now It's Rashi has been translated. It's very easy to have access to Rashi because it's been translated.
1: I, mean, I brought in here one day that the book with the, the Rashi Commentary, on which is the only way I can study it by myself, because otherwise the Torah makes absolutely no
0: sense. Right. It's a, the, the Torah is a book unlike, unlike any other. It's very, it's very dense, and there's a lot that's not being written, a lot being, a lot being hinted to with, uh, with, you know, with an introduction. You know, We had this in last week's Parsha, you know, the, the 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 verse talks about well we had we a hundred examples in parsha But the verse talks about when you do the land of Israel, and you'll have the laws of Tsaras in the house. And look at Rashi there, I'm not gonna spoil it for you. But look at Rashi there, he explains and remember, he only explains, if you ask the question what's bothering Rashi, what's actually bothering Rashi is why is there this preamble of when you go to the land of Israel? And see what he answers. Very interesting. Uh, but Jewish learning today is made possible because of Rashi, and we are very, very appreciative to him today because he is one of the major reasons why humanity has hope. Yes. When I was
1: with Mother and Mary Lou, um, <laughs> that's the whole thing. Um, you said that the Torah is God's word. Yes. Just as much as the Tanakh is God's word. Fair. Okay. I'm, we're studying the Song of Solomon. Yes. And the Song of Solomon in my Tanakh has Rashi putting it in an allegorical type interpretation yes. of it, and I'm reading it from my Tanakhir on my iPad, and they're totally different stories. I mean, words that he uses, he has Torah in there many times, he has Moses and and Aaron in here, he has, I mean, just a tremendous amount of information, it's just not here.
0: Okay, so let's uh, so let's so I'm gonna I'm gonna critique I'm gonna I'm gonna critique your question. Yes. I said first of all like this. When we say that the Torah is the word of God and we say that the Tanakh is the word of God, it's I said I said it's fair. It's a, it's fair to say, but it's actually not quite not quite the same. The Torah is the direct word of God, whereas the Tanakh, the Nevi'im, the, the word means it's, God's not the author of the Song of Songs. Uh, God's not the, the author is someone who is a prophet, but he's not the author, right? We, look, we don't look at Mo, Moshe as being the author of any book. Maybe he wrote some other book that we don't have access to. But the Moshe is maybe the scribe, the stenographer, the typist. God dictates to him and he actually writes it, uh, but he's not the author because he doesn't have any editorial oversight uh, or control to, uh, to the book, um, That being said, Rashi's role where he writes, I'll give you a place to look at, where he writes what his role is as a commentator on the Torah and certainly on the Tanakh as well, uh, is to explain the Pshat. The Torah has, if it's the Word of God like you would read it was, uh, then it's going to be maybe perhaps different than other books. So there could be multiple layers of meaning. So we talk about Pshat, Remez, Drash, and sod the four simplistic, or the four categories of, of meanings that, that, that exist within all of Torah, Rashi tells us, and I'll give you a source to look at, Genesis 3.8. Rashi's comment on Genesis, Genesis 3.8, where he tells us, my goal is to give you pshat. There's many, many realms of drash and sod, uh, and certainly remez as well, different realms of, different planes of Torah study. Rashi is going to give you pshat, the, 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 the way to understand it, the only way to understand it on a simplistic level. Or not the only way, or, one, or his way to understand it on a simplistic level. Frequently, you'll we'll have to invoke the Medrash for that. Now, the Song of Songs, pshat doesn't mean literal. The word pshat means the basic understanding, but it does not necessarily mean the literal understanding. So, while Rashi will not give you necessarily the literal, sometimes the literal, literal understanding is the Pshat, Rashi is going to give you the Pshat. What Pshat is, is a good question. But when you look at a Song of songs, so it has a, a literal translation, Rashi obviously deduced that the literal translation of the words is not the Pshat. Thus, when he gives you the allegorical understanding, clearly he understood that the allegorical understanding is the most simple way to understand within the realm of Pshat. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. That's that, guys. I would encourage everyone to get their hands on a copy of Rashi and maybe read something and ask and try to try to kind of go through the way he looks at it. Try to work it out with him. Try to say, okay, he had this verse. We have the same verse. And he's approaching it from this angle. Why? Like, why is he asking this? Why is he not asking that? Why is he taking it with this maybe approach which seems to be distant from the actual words. I obviously understood that this is the Pshat. Why? Uh, and to do that gives you like a deeper appreciation of Rashi. Uh, but either way, I think the takeaway from us today is that Jewish study was impacted by Rashi perhaps more than anyone else, certainly over the last, over the last thousand years. Uh, it's accessibility on one hand, uh, understanding of words, uh, understanding of the words between the words, uh, but also Uh, not limited to simplistic understanding, also a companion of the greatest scholar of the time approaches Rashi with the same venerance and submission that we have to do as the earliest of beginners. I encourage everyone to get your hands on a copy of a book of Rashi and see for yourself why he remains as popular as ever today uh, almost a thousand years after he was born and 900 years in change after he passed away. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you guys. Everyone have a wonderful Pesach. And I look, oh, wow, clapping. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you guys very soon. Go ahead. Oh, there you go. What is this? This is Steinsholz. Okay. I've heard of Steinholz. What is Steinholtz?
1: Yeah, so Steinz. So this uncompleted- is. I mean, they, they, they couldn't afford to finish publishing. Hey, look, so he's, he, is he is actually brings Rashi, you see that? Yeah, but then, but see, I mean, yeah, but then they put it in Hebrew, right? So, and he actually wrote so, in French, so why, where, I mean... No, so Rashi, it?
0: Rashi wrote in, in Hebrew. He wrote in right. Hebrew. Rashi wrote in Hebrew, yes. He, he might have spoken okay, to his okay, students it, in, 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 in but French, wrote, but he, in, he wrote in, he wrote in Hebrew. Hebrew.
1: Hebrew. So, what I need to do is get... get so, so this, it.
0: Uh, there isn't a book of translation of Rashi in the Talmud, in Hebrew, however, on the Torah there is. Okay.
1: Um, that's, a good spot.
0: that's a good starting spot, and just just read the verse and try first read the verse and then say, okay, let's see what Rashi says, and then try to read the verse again with Rashi.
1: Yeah, I've been. I mean, the last two parshas, I've been. You, you get you get tricked into saying, well, if Maimonides had been writing this today, what would he write? And that's what you you address that at the beginning. Said. Yes. He would probably write the same thing. Yeah. You know, maybe the words would be a little bit